And culturally, the, the where is your God question in the, na- in the nation of Canada, the, the cultural question of where is your God, that question has already been settled. He doesn't exist. So in Canada, no, we will not pray in school. And no, you cannot talk about your God. And his word and his wisdom will not be considered when we're governing our county or our country or our province. We're not going to turn to his word, and we're not going to talk about him, and his morality will not inform our education system. We've already answered this question of where is your God. He's not invited. He either doesn't exist or we don't want him here. They don't really care where our God is. And so as God's people, we face this. We face this reality in our culture, that the culture and the nations are skeptical And in fact, they're past skeptical, they're hostile to the reality of God. We live in a culture and we live among friends and family who worship other gods. They go other places for their wisdom. They go other places for their hope and for their joy. They they turn to other things for the satisfaction in their life. And we live in a culture and among family and friends who have set up hundreds of other little idols in their lives to set their affection on and to depend on. Rather than on the one true and living God, they have turned instead, the whole nation has turned to many false dead gods of the world. And so what is the psalmist's answer? What does the Holy Spirit teach us through this psalm is the answer to living in a culture like that? Well, beginning in verse 3, the songwriter simply begins a comparison of these little gods to God. And so the nations ask, where is their God? And the psalmist immediately turns that question around and says, well, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Our God's in heaven where your gods are not and your gods will never be. And not only is our God in heaven, but he is alive and he is powerful. He does whatever he pleases. He's so powerful that whatever he pleases to do, he will do. If you were to go through scripture again and again, you would find this little phrase. And it pleased the Lord. Anybody remember that from reading through Scripture? You can pick just about any time when God is acting, and you will find that little phrase worked in there somewhere, and it pleased the Lord. It pleased the Lord to do this. It pleased the Lord to do that. Our God is in heaven, and he does what pleases him. He is alive, and he is active, and he is powerful. But then the psalmist says, let's instead, that's a good question, where is our God? But now let's just spend some time asking about, let's, let's talk about your gods. Where are your gods, and what are they doing? And in verse 4, he says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And they have mouths, but do not speak. And they have eyes, but they don't see. And they've got ears, and they can't hear. They have noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. They feet, but they don't walk. And they don't make any noise in their throat. So the psalmist's answer is simply to say to these people who are questioning the reality of the God of the universe, to say, well, let's talk about your gods. Where are your gods, and what are they doing? And I think the the psalmist literally here is speaking about the idols of the pagan nations. And they were made of silver and gold. You remember the trouble that Paul got in, in Ephesus. Because Paul went and he preached the gospel in Ephesus, and the word of God had spread in Ephesus to such a powerful extent that the silversmiths in Ephesus were no longer making any money selling statues, silver statues of Artemis. You remember that in the book of Acts? And so the gospel of the one true living God had basically displaced the entire economy of the the God-makers, of the silversmiths who were making idols, because they were just made of silver and gold. And so the psalmist here is speaking about these idols that the pagan nations would worship. And some of them were silver and gold, and some of them were just wood. And they were carved or shaped to look like they functioned, but they didn't actually function. And the psalmist here is just pointing out the obviousness of it. 
And you're asking us where our God is when we pray and what he can do for us. Well, your gods are just metal and wood. What are they doing? And the psalmist here is echoing Isaiah. In multiple points through the prophet Isaiah, he attacks the idea of idol worship. And in Isaiah 44, he talks about a man who cuts down a cedar. Or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak. And he lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and then the rain nourishes it. And then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and he warms himself. And he kindles a fire and he bakes bread. And also he makes a god and he worships it. He makes an idol and he falls down before it. And the psalmist is echoing the words of Isaiah here. And he just says, it's so silly because he, he cuts down a tree and he uses some of it to build a fire and some of it to make his meal. And then he takes the other part of it, the same tree, and he makes an idol out of it. And he bows down and he worships that idol. When in fact it was God that caused the tree to grow and his rain that nourished it and all of those things. And the songwriter here is just echoing these thoughts of Isaiah. You've carved a mouth, but it doesn't speak. And you've made some ears, but they don't hear. And you put a nose on your God, but you can't smell. And all those other things. And bottom line, he's, he finishes off those verses and he says, and if you put your ear up to listen at his throat, he's not breathing. There's no noise in his throat. He's a dead God. Your gods are dead. They can't give you counsel and they can't act for you. Now our culture here is not primarily a culture that worships literal idols. Although we do have some of that and we're, in some ways we're moving in that direction. But that doesn't mean that we're not a nation or we're not a people without false gods. There are plenty of false gods that we turn to for our satisfaction as a nation. To deal with our problems, to fulfill our dreams, to soothe our pain, to set our affection upon. If we look around the nation of North America, there are hundreds of gods that people are turning their hearts towards. So what makes something an idol then? What makes something a god? The very first of the Ten Commandments is, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods before God is the first commandment. And that leads naturally then to the question, what do you mean other gods? And the answer is immediately given. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in the heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Anything. You shall not make anything an idol. Anything and everything can be an idol of worship, God says, and you're not to make any of those things take a higher priority in your life than me. And so God's not just talking about carved images. In Ezekiel 14.3, God is speaking about the elders of the nation of Israel, and he says, these men have set up idols in their hearts. So obviously God understands they're not setting up little gold statues in their hearts. God understands that idols go beyond carved images, that we in our hearts set up idols inside our affections. God is well aware that the blocks of wood and the carvings of gold are not the real idols. Those things simply represent the bent of our hearts away from him and setting our hope on lesser things. And so an idol is whatever captures your heart and imagination. An idol is anything that provides a primary sense of purpose that you bend your energy and emotions and finances towards that thing. So we can all, in our own lives, we can individually think of the condition of our hearts and ask ourselves the same question that God is asking of these men of Israel and set up idols in their hearts. We can say, what is it in our heart? 
What do we have in our affections that we bend our energy towards, that our thoughts are towards, that our purpose is towards in our heart that isn't God? And it can be your career, making money, or it can be achievement or critical acclaim. It can be reputation and social standing. It can be finding a wife or finding a husband. It can be approval. It could be security. It could be your beauty or your brains. It could be a social cause. It could even be children or family, or it could even be success in Christian ministry. But there is something in our hearts at various times that we bend our energy and our passion and our resources and our dependency towards. And we think, this is what our life is about. It's about this thing. If it begins to take first place in your life, then it's in danger of becoming your God. There are so many people right now, for example, that are trapped in the idolatry of appearances. And sure, we don't build a temple to Aphrodite. We just build gyms and fashion empires, right? And we've got our little house gym where we go and we worship at the God of whatever's in the mirror in front of us, right? And we judge each other on clothing and on body shape and body images. And through magazines and movies, we drive our children into diseases like anorexia or bulimia, all in the name of looking right. In North America, there is no doubt body image is an idol. Fashion and looking properly is a little god of America. Well, it's a big god in America, but it's a little god compared to God. Right? There's people trapped in the idolatry of appearances. Or they're trapped in the idolatry of money. And again, we don't burn sacrifices to Artemis, the god of prosperity. We just sacrifice our health or our family or our ethics on the altar of corporate success. And so we want to succeed and have all the toys. And we abandon our family or we abandon our morality or we abandon our health in order to achieve And worship at the God of money. And we don't pray to the goddess Nike. We just buy her $200 shoes. And we rotate our family life around soccer practice and hockey practice and football practice. And hoping that we will make it to the big leads or we will live vicariously through our children who will make it to the big leagues. Right? And the God of sport will provide for all of our needs. Hockey is going to be our provider. Football or soccer is going to be our provider. And when the God of sports smiles on us, we are happy people. And when we don't make the team or we don't get the scholarship, we're despondent. Because North America is a culture that worships at the altar of sport. There's a hundred cultural and household idols that we can allow to have a controlling position in our heart. And so the psalmist here is speaking to the nation of Israel. He's speaking to the people of God who are among this culture that worships all these different idols around them, whether it's the the idol of Hollywood or the idol of appearances or the idol of money or the, the God of sport, whatever it is. But he's speaking directly to the people of God as well. And and the and the word of God here for us is what are the potential idols in our hearts? What is it that we bend our heart towards more than we ought to? and find ourselves paying far too much attention to and depending far too highly on for our joy and our hope and our salvation. 
There's hundreds of these cultural and household idols that can, we can allow to have a controlling position in our heart, that we can allow to become the focus of our time and our money and our emotions. And then the psalmist gives a very dire warning to the people so that they don't get trapped in this in verse 8. He says, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. This is the danger of false gods. This is the danger of all the little idols in our culture. The end result of making these gods and building them up, the end result of trusting in these gods, is we become like them. We become just as dead and dumb and dysfunctional as these stone and wooden carvings. If you worship your appearances, if you worship your looks, you will eventually become as shallow as your appearances. You'll be skin deep. If you worship money, you will sacrifice your integrity eventually to greed. If you set your heart on sport or accomplishment or fame, the same thing can happen. They do drug testing at the Olympics. Do you know that? I wonder why that is. Why would people push themselves in sport to the point that they would be injecting things into their body that will destroy them in order to succeed at sport? Do you think maybe they've put sport at the wrong place in their heart? Maybe it's a little too important to them? If you worship at these altars, if you worship these gods, they will eventually destroy you. When you set your heart and your hope and your joy on a false god, you do not gain life in the end you simply end up reaping deadly results. They are gods that lead to death. Tim Keller makes this observation in one of his books. He says, After the global economic crisis began in mid-2008, there followed a tragic string of suicides of formerly wealthy and well-connected individuals. The acting chief financial officer of the U.S. Federal Home Loan Loan Mortgage Corporation hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many European royalty in leading families and who had lost $1.4 billion of his clients' money in Bernard Madoff's Ponzi scheme slit his wrists and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his 500-pound-a-night suite in Knightsbridge, London. And when a Bear Stearns executive learned that he would not be hired by J.P. Morgan Chase, which had bought his collapsed firm, he took a drug overdose and leapt from the 29th floor of his office building. And a friend said, this Bear Stearns thing broke his spirit. And these deaths, which all happened after the crash of 2008, were grimly reminiscent of the suicides in the wake of the 1929 stock market crash. These are people who made a god of success and of money. And this is not new. As he mentioned, this is just like the suicides from 1929. And you can go farther back, as early as the 1830s in North American culture, when Alexis de Tocqueville, who's a French... Uh, diplomat. He recorded some famous observations on a visit to America, and he noted in his book on this visit to America that he made as a French diplomat, he said, there is a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. Americans believe that prosperity could quench their yearnings for happiness, but such a hope was illusory because, he added, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. 
This is the reality of counterfeit gods. This is the reality of false idols. This is the reality of setting our heart on anything and bending our purpose towards anything other than the one true and living God. But the psalm doesn't end there with that warning to the people, of course. If you keep going, and if we were to look in Ezekiel 14 again and look at how God was speaking to the elders who had set up idols in their heart, he goes on in Ezekiel 14, 4-5, he says, Therefore, Ezekiel, prophet of mine, speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, If he takes his idols and he comes, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through their idols. This is what God says. God says, you can take all your idols. I don't care. Bring them to me. Gather up in your heart all of your armload of your household idols, and if you come and you come to me, I will receive you with all your idols so that I can lay a hold of your heart again. And the psalmist writes the same thing here. He says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, the priesthood. So he's saying, nation of Israel, trust in God. Priesthood, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. All of you who fear the Lord, any of you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. So the psalmist answer is, trust God. The proper response, if you have these idols and you have these false gods at the center of your affections, the right response is to bring them to God and trust him because he is waiting for you, idols and all. He doesn't care. You bring your armload of household idols to him and he will lay a hold of your heart. God's desire is to bless you and take the consequences of death from you and replace them with consequences of life. He's a living God. And the songwriter here in the Psalms goes on to say, God remembers, he will bless you. Nation, he will bless you. Church, he will bless you, all who trust in him. God stands ready to forgive our idol worship and forgive our self-worship. He knows that our foolish hearts wander. He remembers that we are but dust. He knows that we will put things in our heart ahead of him in our affections. And we will have to repent of that, and we will have to come back. But as he said to Ezekiel, he said, you can take all those idols, and you can bring them to me, and I will lay a hold of your heart again. If God provided his own son to die in order that we can have the life that our idols cannot provide, then he is willing to save us. Our looks will not save us. Our money will not save us. Our fame will not save us. The good opinion and the reputation that we build will not save us. Our success will not save us. None of those things can give us any lasting joy or guide in our life or bring us to God. We can bend our hearts and our energy on a thousand dead ends. And if you look around North America, you've got plenty of examples of thousands of dead ends where you can pour your energy and you can bend your heart towards those things. But none of them will provide the way to life that God has provided through his son, Jesus Christ. So you've got to decide. The nation of Israel had to decide. We have to decide as a people. You have to decide. Is it death or is it life? And the psalmist draws one last comparison. And he compares those who trust in their dead gods versus those who trust in the living God. And he writes, 
The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Remember in verse 8, he said, well, in 5 to 7, he said, those gods are all dead, right? He said, those are dead gods. They've got mouths but can't speak. They've got ears that can't hear. They're just dead lumps of material. And those who trust in them become like them. So now at the end, he says, the dead, those dead worshipers, they don't praise God. Those people who are dead, like they're dead-end idols, they don't praise God. Nor do any who go down into silence. Nor do any who go into the grave that way. If you worship a dead God, or you go into the grave worshiping a dead God, you'll never praise the Lord. They just go into the grave dead. But we, the comparison here is, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. What an incredible prophetic statement from the Psalms here of the new covenant reality of Jesus' victory over death and our assurance of heaven. We will praise God now in life, and not only that, the psalmist sees we're going to praise beyond the grave. We're going to praise for eternity. We will praise God in life, and we will continue even after death to praise God forevermore and praise Him forever. That's the comparison dead idols and a dead life with no praise and going silent and dead into the grave or life and blessing now and rejoicing and praise to God now in this life and forevermore. There's two quick applications here. First of all, personally, what do you have your heart set on? What are you putting your hope in that isn't God? What is sitting at the center of your life that gets all of your attention and all of your resources but isn't God? What are you putting your hope in and your heart on? Be careful it's not your false God. Set it aside and get God back at the primacy in your life where he should be. He has said that he will accept you should you come to him, even with all of your idols. He will set your heart back on him. And so we can think about that. What in our life has infected us from the culture around us? The problem with Israel is that What happened over time is all these household gods from the nations around them and the nations that they allowed to dwell with them ended up creeping into their homes. And time and time again, God had to continually purge Israel of their reliance on idols. And if I had time, it could go so deep. But if you go through all these different things that God put them through, and and actually their, their captivity in Babylon was one of those periods where God was trying to get the idols out of their life. And the neat thing is it worked. I won't spend time on it, but the neat thing is it worked. That that when you get to the New Testament, and archae- you know, if you went back in history and archaeology and everything else and studied this, this is actually shown. That in, in Hebrew homes, prior to the New Testament period, you can see the periods where there are dozens and dozens of household idols in their home alongside their worshiping at the temple. But then finally, in that period, at the end of Malachi, when God finally gets angry to the point where he says, I just wish they would shut my temple doors because I'm so sick of this. But you go through that, the things that he did with his prophets, it worked. Because when you get to the time of Jesus in the New Testament, almost all the household idols are gone. The Jewish people actually did return to just worshiping God, and they left the idols behind. So it actually worked. God was faithful to his word through the prophet Ezekiel that he did accept his people back, and the idols eventually did disappear from the households of the Hebrew people. 
That's a totally separate thing. But, but it speaks to the faithfulness of God, that he will work and he will work and he will work on his people to remove the false idols from their heart until they worship the one true living God that will give them life. And so the first application quickly to us is what idols are creeping in from our culture into our households and into our hearts that we are setting our hope on, that we are bending our affection on, that we are worshiping at, that we need to clear out and make way for the one true living God. Because those idols will let us down. And secondly is this. Jim, this is where I'm getting to. (laughs) Secondly is this. There is a cultural opportunity for us. Because the reality, as the people of God, where the world has turned to a hundred different false gods in order to arrange their lives, is the opportunity to provide the alternative answer of the one true and living God when their idols and their false gods eventually let them down. And we're starting to see this happen right now in our society, right? Even as Tim Keller wrote about the collapse of 2008. That was a time that was ripe opportunity when people, not just people hanging themselves and killing themselves, not them, too late for them, unfortunately, but people were in despair over the collapse of the hope that they put in their wealth. And there was opportunity there as hearts turned back towards God and understood that money was not going to be the answer to success and happiness in their life. And as we look at the breakdown of certain lines of even political thought or, or philosophical thought of postmodernism and all these other different ideas that the culture has put forward and they're beginning to fail and they are letting people down, you end up with cultural opportunities and personal opportunities to step into people's lives and say, you set your hope on this thing and it let you down. Let me introduce you to some God, to some person who will never let you down. And so that is the opportunity in the schools. We have, in our high school, we have children who are brought up to worship at the altar of success. Or they are being told by the culture that they have to look a certain way, or behave a certain way, or speak a different way, or make this level in sports, or make this level in academics. Or that they have to believe certain things about the environment, or or take on certain social justice causes, and those things are somehow going to give them purpose and meaning in life, and that's going to carry them through. And on any given day, any given week, Those false gods are failing. And we have the opportunity to step into their lives. We have a cultural opportunity in our culture and we have a personal opportunity in our own lives to step into the lives of the people that we know. Whether they're co-workers or whether they're family members or whether they're friends. And when their little God has finally let them down and they're wondering what they should set their heart on, that is going to provide them hope and provide them peace and provide them security and redeem them, then we have the opportunity to take their little false God away and say there is a much, much greater God that is standing ready to fill your life in a way you can't imagine. When you realize that you can't take all the toys with you, when all the money in the bank has not made you any happier, when no matter how good you look, gravity wins, then you can step forward and you can say, I got the God who made gravity. Gravity doesn't win in the end. There's a glorified body waiting for you. But more importantly, there's a God who has his heart and his affection set on you. And he wants you to give up all these gods that are failing you and put your trust in him. And so the reality, the application is, is we have an opportunity 
because these false gods will fail. The cracks are appearing in the image industry. We are rethinking this whole idea of what it means to be putting our young women, especially through this ridiculous body image mill that's ruining them. The baby boomers were wondering how the millennials were ever going to be as wealthy as they are, but the millennials don't care if they're as wealthy as the baby boomers because they're starting to realize that money is not the answer to the happiness of their parents. And so they're looking for something else, and they're looking in a lot of wrong places, but they can start looking in the right place. And the Olympics and the professional drug scandals in major league sports have filled magazines and locker rooms with a more cautionary and healthy approach to competition. The financial crises have shaken our trust in wealth all over the place. You can see the cracks appearing in all these little gods. And that's our opportunity as a people of God to provide the answer in the one true God. But even more importantly, it's that personal opportunity. So engage with the people you know. Talk to your kids. Talk to your coworkers. Talk to your friends. Talk to your neighbors over the fence. Let them know that you have a God that cannot be shaken and cannot be displaced. Health, money, looks, friends, success, it eventually fails them. And they will be searching for something that does not fail. And we have that way. The way forward out of despair is to reveal to them the reality of the false idols, expose the false idols in their life and culture, and point them instead to the living God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this Psalm 115. And that praise at the last verse circles right back to the first verse. Not to our glory, but to yours, Lord. Not for our name, but for your name. Everything we do here as your people, we want to be for your glory and for your name because we know that it is the only thing that is worthy of glory, the only thing that is worthy of our trust because you will not fail. You cannot fail. You are faithful and steadfast and loving to the end. And Father, I thank you that we can come to you with all of our stupid little idols. We can gather them up and we can come to you and we can say, look, look at all these things we've set our heart on. And you say, no, you know what? Doesn't matter. I want to grab a hold of your heart and set your affection on me. Because I'm your dad. And I love you. And I know the best thing for you is me. So Father, as a people, forgive us. Even in our hearts right now, Lord, I ask that you would stir in our hearts to reveal to us what that little God is, what that little idol is that we have put ahead of you and put our hope in foolishly and reveal it to us and cause us to repent of it and turn back to you. And then secondly, Lord, I ask that you would give us opportunity, that you would show us how to reveal these false little gods in the lives of the people that we love around us, not to crush them, not to destroy them, not to be smug and and point out how wrong they are, but to release them of a false hope and to rescue them from despair when that little God fails them. And that we use those opportunities, Lord. Give us the wisdom to use those opportunities to point them towards the one true God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.